Well, comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. And from listener donations at WJFFradio.org. Well, good evening, and welcome once again to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Here to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. Before we do get started, I'm happy to announce that Let's Talk Vets, along with five other Radio Catskill productions, are now available as podcasts. Each show can be found on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, and many more. You can find Let's Talk Vets shows dating back to 2018. You can also find them at wjffradio.org slash staging slash podcasts. Our thanks to Patricio Rabeo, Tim Bruno, Jason Dole, and all the other folks that make this public radio station such a great place to be. Also, we received an email from a friend of this program, Dale Wise, founder of the Why Can't We Serve movement, and producer and director of a film by the same name. When a service member is injured and can no longer perform his or her primary MOS, they are usually summarily discharged with a pending disability determination, which must then be reviewed and confirmed by the VA so that that service member can receive the benefits they have earned. As a result, many unfortunately feel they are no longer useful, suffer identity loss, depression, substance abuse, and worse. However, depending upon the nature of the injury, they may well be able to be cross-trained and continue to serve. The movie tells the story. You can look at it at YouTube and search for Why Can't We Serve? Know what a burn pit is? Well, by the end of our program, you will. It's just what it sounds like. It's a pit in the ground where stuff is burned. This is the current method of waste disposal used on many of our bases in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Turns out everything and anything is disposed of in this manner, and our troops are exposed to the airborne particulate produced. Many of our service members are suffering from chronic diseases or have died as a result. Tonight we'll visit with a panel of folks who know this subject only too well. But first... Here is the director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, Dawn Shaw, with our monthly update on the VA Today. Okay, hello, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to give you some updates on what's going on here at VA Hudson Valley, especially related to our COVID-19 vaccine clinics. Our walk-in COVID-19 clinics uh, have been expanded and are being held at our Montrose and Castle Point campuses uh, Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. every day. There, it is now open to all veterans eligible to receive care at VA regardless of their age, and that just was expanded this week. Veterans who would prefer to be vaccinated at one of our community clinics closer to their home can call us to set up an appointment. We have community clinics located throughout the Hudson Valley in Carmel, Goshen, Monticello, New City, Pine Plains, Port Jervis, and Poughkeepsie. And again, we are now um, vaccinating all veterans that are eligible to receive VA care regardless of age. 
All veterans are encouraged to enroll in VA if they're not currently enrolled. However, I do want to let you know that uh, according to federal law, geographic adjusted income limits must meet additional criteria to be eligible for VA services. Currently, VA is focusing our efforts on providing the allotted vaccines that we have received to enrolled and eligible veterans. And when veterans apply for VA health care, they are assigned to one of eight priority groups. Consistent with our legal authority and supply of vaccine, VA would like to vaccinate as many veterans as possible. As noted above, we are currently focused on vaccinating those veterans eligible and in the care first in our system. However, recently there has been legislation introduced by Congress that would allow VA to offer the vaccine to veterans not eligible for care at the VA. VA Hudson Valley is ready to support this expanded eligibility as soon as these pieces of legislation become law and guidance is received from VA central office. So stay tuned and as this information evolves, we'll be happy to provide updated guidance and information to all veterans. Also very pleased to let you know that we are currently offering both the Moderna vaccine as well as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine at VA Hudson Valley. We are using the Moderna vaccine primarily at our Castle Point and Montrose campuses and our Johnson & Johnson vaccine at the outpatient clinics in the surrounding counties. And the main reason for that is due to the storage requirements. Uh, the Moderna vaccine does is required to be stored at much colder temperatures than the Johnson & Johnson, and we don't have those types of refrigerators and freezers available at our outpatient clinic locations. So now that we have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, we are able to keep the vaccine at our outpatient clinics and use them use the vaccine there as well. The other main difference to highlight between the two vaccines is the Johnson & Johnson is a single-dose vaccine administered once, and the Moderna vaccine is administered in two doses, approximately 28 days apart from one another. But we are happy to provide information to our veterans if they have questions specific about either of these vaccines. In addition, we'd like to tell you some other important updates happening here at VA Hudson Valley. As more and more people are becoming vaccinated and uh, the prevalence of COVID-19 is uh, decreasing, we are happy to let you know that we are continuing to expand our face-to-face -face appointments at all locations. Uh, we continue to offer both um, or all three types of appointments, including face-to-face -face appointments, video uh, or telehealth appointments, as well as telephone encounters. But as we continue to see um, improvements, uh, we are expanding those face-to-face -face appointments in particularly our specialty care areas, but also primary care and mental health as schedules allow, and as we can continue to offer a complement of all three types of services to our veterans. Finally, I want to let you know about um, a survey that we recently had at the VA. We have our long-term care units, um, which are called our community living centers, and we have three of those uh, homes on our Montrose campus and one on our Castle Point campus. And we were recently surveyed at our Montrose campus to look at our program there. So the Long-Term Care Institute conducted a two-day survey analyzing many aspects of care and the environment of our veterans living on these homes and um, how the care is. And I'm very pleased to let you know that we had an excellent survey and it's a real testament to the wonderful care that VA is providing for our veterans. We did not have any findings regarding the quality of care 
at our Montrose campus where the survey was conducted. And we just had two very minor environmental issues that we were able to correct very quickly. So we're very pleased with those results and very proud of the care that we provide to our nation's heroes. So thank you for this opportunity to continue to provide updates about what's going on here at VA Hudson Valley. And um, thank you to all our veterans. Um, Thank you, Doug, for allowing us to do this. And please, everybody, continue to stay safe and, and stay healthy. It is said that war is the end result of diplomatic failure. More than anyone else, our women and men in uniform understand this. When they raise their hands, they agree to work in an environment where their presence or their actions may literally mean the difference between life and death, their own or someone else's. Vietnam is a prime example of a war caused by the failure of our diplomats and elected officials. U.S. involvement in this ill-conceived war lasted for over a decade, and in the end, we left those we were supposed to protect in a wake of death and human suffering. One out of every ten Americans who served in Vietnam was a casualty. Out of the 2.7 million who served, 58,148 were killed in action. 304,000 were wounded. Although the percentage of died is similar to other wars, amputations or crippling wounds were 300% higher than in World War II. In all, 75,000 Vietnam veterans were seriously disabled. Even four and a half decades later, the death toll from Vietnam continues to mount. As a result of illnesses caused by exposure to Agent Orange, horrific physical injuries, the overarching moral injury referred to as PTSD, and suicide. We have now lost some 350,000 Vietnam service members and veterans. Add to that that upon their return home, our troops were assaulted spit upon and disrespected by the cosmically stupid for the crime of defending their right to do so. If you want to add a little bit more insult to injury, veterans often have to fight to receive the care that they've earned thanks to a grateful nation. Often by the time they receive needed care, it's too late. Unfortunately, the rule seems to be for these men and women, you are ineligible until you are proven eligible. Hold that thought. As theaters of operations change, so do logistics. Since 2001, when the first 3,800 troops were deployed to attack al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. troops have been a presence in the Middle and Far East. In that desolate environment, few camps are equipped with the infrastructure to properly and safely dispose of waste. The solution? Take all manner of waste, dig a hole, add some accelerant, and light it off. The emissions are simply released into the atmosphere and breathed by anyone in the area. But let not your heart be troubled. Our government has taken decisive action and created a list, a burn pit registry, for those who have served in that part of the globe and may be afflicted with aggressive new forms of cancer or other maladies some eerily akin to the effects of Agent Orange and those who worked on the pile or simply lived in lower Manhattan on and after 9-11. The data collected by this registry will help the VA study whether burn pits truly constitute a danger to those exposed. The way the military is you could not take the trash that we have today and just ship it off base because your enemy could get lots of intel from that trash. So everything that we do, everything that we have, goes to a pit and gets burned. Nothing goes, nothing leaves that base. Toxic smoke from those military burn pits are now being blamed for causing incurable lung diseases, leukemia, brain tumors, migraine headaches, and other illnesses in veterans and civilian contractors. Burn pits were built at more than 250 U.S. military bases in Afghanistan and Iraq, starting from the earliest days of the wars in those countries. Three Ohioans among the 130,000 people who have complained to the Veterans Administration about the health consequences of burn pits talked to the Columbus Dispatch. 
These are their stories. The burn pit is a big open pit dug into the sand and then on three sides of it was where they would dump all the trash and then light up the trash and just burn the trash. It's probably the size of a football field. It's, you know, it literally was that big. It had roads around it. It was a pit. It was just a hole in the ground. And it was, I think ours was, God, probably 80 by 80 feet. And they take all of this stuff and they push it into that pit with a, you know, with dozers and they burn it. That's their way of, you know, getting rid of it. And it basically burned 24 seven. This burn pit, they would burn everything you can imagine, everything in your household, the stuff that do not burn, the mattresses and tires and uh, insecticide cans, paint, everything that you could imagine, they'd take out to this pit and they would just push it in there with a bulldozer, they'd spray some fuel on it, they'd torch it off. And so it didn't incinerate and get to high temperatures, so it would just sit and smolder just constantly. So medical waste, uh, we take uh, our mattresses, aerosol cans, um, vehicle tires. It was, it was their place to get rid of everything. Um, scrap parts from vehicle stuff that doesn't even burn. Everything you could imagine, food waste, uh, building supplies, you know, everything you could imagine was in those pits burning and smoldering. It was, just, it was nasty and it smelled horrible. I mean, you couldn't imagine the odor coming from that place. We weren't in control of the burn pit in any way. We, we didn't ask too many questions about the burn pit. Um, we'd gone over to take some, I think we had wood, something simple as pallets, and we needed to get rid of them, and I, we took them over there. And there was actually two soldiers. One soldier was on the machine, and one soldier was putting diesel fuel into the, to start the fire. And he had a truck sitting there, and he had a, a hose with probably a three or four inch opening. And he turned that diesel on, and it just, and he stood there and was talking and just letting that diesel go out into this pit. That's what they were going to start this fire with. And I'm, I, I looked at him like, how, how much do you need? You know, <laughs> how much fuel do you need to start this thing? And I didn't say a word. I just, stood there in awe because I'm an environmental guy and what are you doing? I couldn't believe it. Actually, according to my biopsy result, there was mild anthracosilicotic dust deposition, which is silicon and quartz dust in my lungs, um, interstitial fibrosis, which, was, which is also a, it's secondary to the main diagnosis, which is constricted bronchiolitis. They have not given me any diagnosis for how much time I have. Um, when I seen the pulmonary doctor in May, she was like, well, we'll keep checking on it. And when it gets to a certain point, we'll put you on for a lung transplant list. So, and even then, a total lung transplant doesn't actually correct it or get rid of it. It's incurable, There's, it's irreversible. I don't have cancer, it's an autoimmune disease. Um, you know, I've, lo I've got lung problems, I've got sinus problems, of course my hearing, I've lost 50% of my hearing. Um, I have joint issues, I have cataracts from the prednisone use. I go to Cleveland Clinic every six months and I have uh, infusions, which is what I did yesterday. I've got to go back in two weeks. Uh, I sit there for five and a half hours and have a rituxan infusion. Rituxan is like the miracle drug. Um, it helps with this autoimmune disease. I go every, I was going every three months. Now it's about every four to five to have bronchoscopies where they have to go in. My bronchial tubes thin, which is they close and they have to go in and use um, balloons or steroid injections to get those to open back up so that I can continue to breathe. I wheeze all the time. I don't know if you guys can hear that, but it's, that's just part of my daily life. You know, a lot of coughing, a lot of wheezing. When, when I first came home from Iraq in October of 2005, immediately when I came home, I started having migraines, having just bad headaches, and I have to call in, either take a couple hours sick time in the morning because 
when I get up, I'll, I'll have to uh, take medication or inject myself. Um, and then I lay back down and it kind of the migraines will subside and then I can get up and start functioning. And then there are times where that just doesn't happen. And so I just end up taking the whole day off sick. Something over there triggered it for me. I started out with a cough, you know. Then I went to breaking bones from coughing. But you know what, I, when I came home from Iraq, I, did, I didn't have headaches. I, I had minor headaches before. I didn't have any headaches when I was in Iraq. But when I came home is when I started having all these headaches. So, you know, you, you connect the line, you know, connect the dots and you can kind of say, hey, this is related to that. I really am one of those people, I really enjoy the military. I think the military is a great thing and I wish that more people would do it and have an appreciation for it. Um, but that being said, you know, I really enjoy what I did and I would do it again, but I just think that the VA should be able to accept and honor the people who have been out there, you know, and done things. Um, you know, my problem is very minute. There's people out there who, you know, have lost their lives or they've lost limbs or other issues, you know, and I think that if you sacrifice what you do or what you, you know, your livelihood for the country, that the Veterans Administration should step up and take care of those that served. I'm still very supportive of the military. If somebody wants to go in, I, I'm like, well, here's some truths that your recruiters may not tell you. Um, but other than that, if people want to go in, I'm not going to say, no, you shouldn't do it. The VA won't take care of you because if, at this point, if they don't realize that, because, I mean, it's constantly in the news, then they will be in for rude awakening when they get out, probably. I, I'd like help with my medical bills. I don't want a big check, you know? Just let me send my bills to you. You know, something, I don't, you know, I'm not asking for money, I, I want help. I just want assistance with my, with my medical bills. I didn't create this, I didn't go out and do a drug or not take care of myself or, I don't know how to put it, I didn't, I didn't do this to me. This was done to me. Somebody's liable for this. It's just, it's not fair. Who's responsible? Is it the defense contractors that are hired by the Department of Defense to operate these facilities? That argument has merit, judging by the track record, of some of these companies who have failed to recognize their social responsibilities must outweigh their profit. But where is the outrage on Capitol Hill? After all, this can't be good for the environment. And where's Al Gore, or that masked man, John Kerry, when we need them? What happened to the existential threat of climate change and global warming? Why is our government continuing this practice? Why do our service members have to argue with the VA and the Department of Defense bureaucracy or wait for more data to be amassed before they can get the care they've earned? And while these questions remain unanswered, service members continue to be exposed, get sick, and in too many cases die. Now, there are a few of our elected representatives, like Peter Welsh, representative from Vermont, who are trying to pass legislation on behalf of our servicemen and women. But sadly, it would appear that too many of our public servants are more interested in spending on pet projects, shifting the blame for their actions or inactions, their next vote, or maintaining their power by leveraging the pandemic, than protecting our service members' health. You be the judge of that. But don't take anything I've said here for granted. We only know what we've been told or read, or what we've heard. But the next voices you will hear sadly know exactly what they're talking about. Pat Cram is the widow of Sergeant Major Michael Cram, a Vermont National Guard platoon leader, who succumbed to aggressive prostate cancer at the age of 48 after exposure to airborne particulate matter produced by burn pits while serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. Pat also runs a charity serving children with cancer in the name of her late husband. June Heston is the widow of Brigadier General Michael Heston, commander of the Vermont National Guard, who also died of cancer at 58 after multiple tours. 
and both Pat and June are spearheading efforts to raise public awareness of the health implications of burn pits. Staff Sergeant Kevin Dixon, a member of the unit Mike Cram commanded, will be with us to tell us about his experience. And Vermont Representative Peter Welch is a leading voice on this issue and will explain what legislation is wending its way through the legislative morass on Capitol Hill. Finally, Mark McLaren of the Democratic Group, the gentleman who brought us this story, has a few remarks of his own to put things in perspective. Okay, so welcome to Let's Talk Vets, and thank you all for taking the time to raise public awareness of this existential threat to our U.S. military personnel serving in the Far East. I'm going to start with Staff Sergeant Dixon. Staff Sergeant, you're a member of Mike Cram's Vermont National Guard Unit, and first I want to thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. And uh, when and where were you deployed? I was deployed uh, to Iraq in 2004 and 2005. And in 2010, I went to Afghanistan. Okay, so for our audience's benefit, uh, would you please define what is a burn pit, why do they exist, and what is burned in them? So a burn pit is kind of just what it sounds like. It's a hole in the ground where rubbish, any type of thing that needs to be disposed of is put into and lit on fire. Plastics, food, metal, human waste, anything. And since serving over there, have you been diagnosed with any conditions related to exposure to burn pits? I have not formally been diagnosed with anything connected to burn pits. I do right now have some unexplained diagnosis that we're still working on with the VA currently, trying to figure out what's going on with me here. Okay, and at the time you served, uh, were you or other troops provided with any advisories regarding potential health hazards associated with the burn pits or issued any kind of personal protective equipment? No. The burn pits were such uh, far down on something we were worried about when we were overseas in a combat zone that I don't remember anybody even talking about them. We just brought the stuff there and, and got rid of it. So, Pat and June, first, please accept condolences on behalf of our listeners to uh, Let's Talk Vets and the entire WJFF family. Both of your husbands, Vermont National Guard platoon leader, Sergeant Major Michael Cram and Brigadier General Michael Heston, who was commander of the Vermont National Guard, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and both uh, subsequently died of cancer as a result of exposure to airborne particulates produced by burn pits. Other members of the Vermont National Guard have also been diagnosed with cancer and other ailments associated with that exposure as well. When did you ladies and your husbands first realize something was wrong, and when did you make the determination that there was a connection between what was going on health-wise with your husbands and burn pit exposure? This is Pat Cram. For us, I think once Mike got back from Afghanistan, in, in hindsight, we knew something was wrong. But it really wasn't until the summer of 2016 when his health just deteriorated. And they blamed it on a number of things. They, they told him that he had you know problems with his back, um, gave him muscle relaxants, sent him to a kidney specialist who immediately said, no, it's your prostate. And in June, when we got the diagnosis of prostate cancer, Mike knew immediately that it was from the burn pits. We had suffered a loss within our MP family just that year in 2016 of one of his soldiers, Jeffrey Solis, and he had passed away from prostate cancer. And once Mike realized that there was a connection, um, he encouraged all of his male soldiers and the MPs at the time to get their, their PSA levels tested. And so he knew immediately when he was diagnosed that there was a connection. Okay, June? When Mike first started getting sick, it was in 2016, and he started having back pain, and he, he went undiagnosed for 10 months. Um, he knew the burn pits were an issue, but it never crossed our mind that his illness could be related 
connected to that. He knew that when the registry was established in 2014, he encouraged all of his soldiers to get on the registry and he registered immediately, but he still did not think anything about his illness. And I even was thinking it was, you know, a parasite or something that he got while he was deployed. And 10 months later, when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, stage four, someone sent me an article about a young woman from the Minnesota Guard who had also been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that was deemed a result of her exposure to burn pits. And that's when we started doing our own sort of investigation and talking to Mike's oncologist at Dana-Farber. And then the doctor confirmed that more than likely because he had done all kinds of testing and uh, he didn't have any genetic predisposition and he didn't have any behavioral habits that would have contributed to this. So that's when we started, you know, asking more questions. When you folks were seeking treatment, how did the VA respond? Was there any recognition on their part? I think I'm hearing that there wasn't. Mike wasn't treated at the VA. So when he did have an appointment there just to say that he was going to be receiving treatment in Boston. They didn't say anything about burn pits at that point. And the the same with Mike. My Mike um, wasn't being treated by the VA either. He was also at Dana-Farber. But once we got the diagnosis, Mike applied to the VA for a disability claim. And that um, turned out to be a five-year process. We were denied five times through the VA. And uh, after Mike's passing, I finally took it all the way to the DOD and was finally approved. But the numbers for the VA approving these disability claims are weak at best. Um, Between 2007 2018, there were approximately 11,000 burn pit disability claims submitted to the VA. 80% of those have been denied. So the lives of commanders and unit leaders usually assume collateral duties of family liaison, sounding board confidant and anchor for members of a command unit. What has been your experiences in our either one or both of you still involved with the families of the men and women your husband's commanded? I'm still very involved with Mike's MP unit. It's a very small unit. Uh, 21, I think, was the total, right, Kevin? And um, many of us live right here in Milton, so we've always been very close. And I think with Mike's passing, these young men and women that were in his group have really rallied to support, you know, not only my family, but also each other. This has been very traumatic for all of us, and they're concerned about their health. They're concerned about, you know, is the military going to take care of their families should something happen? Since Mike's death, Pat, you've made it your objective to sound the alarm through education and raise public awareness of burn pits and the danger they present. I know that Of course, this interview is going to be on the air, and I know you've done some work with other media outlets. Please tell us about your outreach mission a little bit. Well, we have, and June can talk more on uh, a bill that she really pushed in our Vermont legislature, but we've been talking about this subject for well over three years. I'm still hearing from people who have family that are in the military and who are being deployed. Um, We have a big deployment going out in Vermont, some have already left, that still don't know about the burn pits and the hazards of the burn pits. So I think now we go back to educating the families. You know, let's face it, they're our first line of defense. The soldiers certainly have a job to do. They're not thinking, like Kevin said, that was well down on their list of priorities when they're deployed. And and quite frankly, when they get home, they just want to just go back to their normal lives, their jobs, their families, their friends. They're not thinking about the health aspects of, you know, what they're exposed to. The families, we get this into the mind of the families they're going to be on it. They're going to be watching for the signs when their soldiers come back. Look, Mike misdiagnosed as well as as Mike Heston. 
if we had known or primary care doctors had known that Mike had been deployed and that there was an issue, Mike would be doing this interview today and not me. We don't want this to happen to any other family. Okay, I'm going to turn now to Representative Welsh, at least from my observation, and I I watch a lot of news. I'm kind of a junkie when it comes to that. But I haven't heard much about this as far as uh, Congress is concerned, and you appear to be one of the few voices in Congress raising this issue. When and how did you become aware and involved, sir? Well, I got involved through Pat. You know, her husband, the wonderful Sergeant Major, was a highly respected, wonderful Vermonter uh, member of the military. And uh, Pat really took it on herself to raise awareness about the danger that our service members who were exposed to burn pits uh, experienced. And then, of course, June, I want to thank you. You have been so much an advocate. And, Kevin, uh, you as well. And, you know, you can speak concretely about this. And you said something that's just so practical. You're over in a war zone. The last thing you're worried about is what's happening to the garbage, right? But bottom line here, uh, it was the efforts of... uh, Pat, I really have to give you the credit for getting this all started. And then you got reinforcements with, with June and her losing her wonderful husband as he lost yours. This is like, reminds me an awful lot of Agent Orange, where we had our soldiers uh, in the Vietnam era on the jungle floor while defoliant was being sprayed over their heads to defoliate anything it touched. And it took years and years and years before the obvious was recognized by the VA, namely uh, that those soldiers who were getting sprayed with Agent Orange were going to have effects just like the foliage was going to have effects. And eventually, after a long, hard struggle by folks uh, like Pat and like June and like Kevin, the VA at least came to recognize as a presumption that if a soldier was uh, in the vicinity of uh, Agent Orange, they uh, could get a presumption that their cancer, their disability was service-connected. And we're seeing that is the case that we're having to make here with exposure to burn pits. The first step was getting a registry. You know, the VA can ask the question, what's the con- what is the connection? So we got, as a result of, uh, I, I really would say, these Vermonters' advocacy, the establishment of a burn pit registry. I work with my colleague, Raul Ruiz, who was hearing from uh, people who lost loved ones, as uh, Pat and June did. And we got that done, and that registry is starting to document the connection between exposure to burn pits and the onset of some of these uh, terrible cancer and pulmonary diseases. So we've made some progress there. Now I'm seeing that both in the House and the Senate, uh, total support for the registry, legislation actually to ban burn pits, you know, the soldiers have no say over that. They just have to be wherever they're sent and they'll show up and do their job. We want to get location of the burn pits. There's eight major burn pits now. We don't even know where they are. And let's hope that, that our soldiers who are recently being deployed are not in the vicinity of these burn pits. But the long-term goal here for us is that we want a presumption of disability. If a soldier was exposed to burn pits and has a disease that is associated with a cancer or pulmonary disease, the presumption we believe should be that that is service-connected. And, uh, you know, we have to have as a proposition uh, that I think has got to be non-negotiable, and that is the cost of the war has to include the cost of caring for the warrior. It just is part of the the bond that we have to have with our um, soldiers who show up, report for duty, and do whatever it is that is asked of them. And when they get back and they suffer the consequences, then shouldn't we have an obligation to help them get through it? And the aspect of this that I found so difficult, Pat was talking about it. But, you know, you get back, you, your husband left, and he's over there, and you're so happy he's home and he's safe, or so it appears. And he's healthy, and he wants to get back, as Pat and June saw, to helping other people, getting on with life, getting back in the community. Then they have this horrible disease, and you don't know what it is. You go through the struggle of trying to diagnose. And then when you make that connection, 
you get hassled by the bureaucracy at this point. And that military is served and loved in a way becomes your own adversary. I think that's hard. Let's, let's spare our, our soldiers and let's spare their families that ordeal. Uh, so I really want to thank uh, Kevin and Pat in June. We've made some progress, but we're going to keep at it. And uh, God bless you for doing the work that you've done on behalf. I know you're doing it on behalf of your husbands and their memory and for the good and what, the welfare of other people who are in your position. So what is the status of Senate Bill S-2950, uh, new provisions for burn pits in the National Defense Authorization Act and the Veterans Right to Breathe Act? Uh, they're both pending. My hope in the Senate, and of course, that would be up to Patrick and Bernie, but did they get hearings there? Uh, we have legislation that's similar to that in the House uh, with Congressman Raul Ruiz. And there's two things. One, can we have another hearing? So we'll be advocating for that. Number two, when we pass the next defense authorization bill, uh, that tends to be a place where you can insert provisions as an amendment uh, that will advance the cause here. So let's keep at it. Okay. Given what we've heard here and what you've shared, where do we go from here? How can the public get involved if they want to? And what is your advice to those who believe they've been affected by exposure to burn pits? Number one, the advocacy of the family members is been crucial in, uh, in, in accelerating the progress we've made. Okay. So this is hard work that uh, Pat and June and Kevin are doing, but it's been really effective work. So more of that. Number two, I think the outreach that you're doing, I know gives a consolation and peace of mind to other service members and their families. So that's important. And then third, I have just seen an increasing amount of interest among members of Congress because their Pat Crams and their June Hestons are talking to them in Arizona, in Iowa, and so on. And the members of Congress, by and large, Republicans and Democrats, know we have a debt to our veterans. So the advocacy on a member-by-member basis by families who've been affected makes a difference. You don't know exactly when that legislation is going to pass, but to make it pass, you've got to be doing that work, as, uh, as, as everyone here has been doing. And I'm currently involved with the King Coalition, which is toxic exposure of American military that is also working on federal legislation. There's a number of bills proposed. And I think that, you know, like the uh, Right to Breathe Act, that's that is a great act. But there are only nine illnesses listed there. Lung cancer is the only cancer. This is bigger than than one form of cancer. There are a lot of, you know, it goes from asthma to all these different forms, uh, rare forms of cancer, brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer. Um, so it, to, we do need to work on this, uh, this presumption of illness so that all of our veterans are taken care of. And this, this exposure, this kind of conversation is what's going to advance the efforts. And so I appreciate what you're doing. So Mark McLaren, First, I want to thank you for bringing us the opportunity to shine a light on this issue. And when you and I spoke, when we were setting this up, you had some real clear thoughts that you wanted to share with the folks. I think the the government has an important role in this, um, but I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that the private sector should be concerned about this as well. And, uh, you know, Kellogg, Brown and Root is, you know, who oversaw these um, camps during Afghanistan and Iraq are currently bidding on and being granted government uh, contracts. So the investors in this private company that includes Goldman Sachs and uh, BlackRock Fund and Vanguard Group should take a very serious look at the culpability of this company's product in the death and impairment of U.S. service people. And they should, uh, you know, insist that these companies cease that activity uh, that is harming service people, and that these companies should take a very serious look at reparations for service families who have been affected by their products. I would tend to agree with that. Okay, Pat and June, uh, last words for you. You guys are also involved in a charity for children. 
with cancer. And I'd like our listeners to know about that and how they can help if they wish to get on board with that. Well, when Mike got his uh, diagnosis that there was, he had exhausted all his medical procedures that he could do. We as a family sat down and he decided that he'd like to do um, one last gift to the community, if you would say. And he took his uh, life insurance policy from the Winooski Police Department and started a foundation. And the foundation is called the 919 Foundation. Um, that was his call number in Winooski, M919. And his chief at the time, uh, Rick Hebert, suggested that maybe Camp Tecumto would be a good outlet for our fundraising. And June can speak more to Camp Tecumto, but it's kids, it's camp for kids with cancer. And so we started this foundation and very, very proud to say in the three years that we have done this, the first year between GoFundMe that was set up after Mike's passing, as well as fundraisers we did, we've been able to donate 27000 and the last two years we've been able to raise $11,000 for camp. So we're very, very proud of that. And I, there's a lot of synchronicity here because I've been involved with Camp Tecumta. Uh, this will be my 37th year as a counselor. So I started with the camp when it started in 1985, and I've been in, served in a lot of different roles with the camp. And so when I heard that um, Pat and Mike had established this foundation and they wanted to support Camp to Come to, we've, we've had a few conversations about it. So, and, it, and it's for any child who has or has had cancer that lives, in, that's treated at our hospital here in uh, Burlington, Vermont. And, you know, we've been, even during COVID, we're now doing virtual camps for these kids. So if, if somebody wanted to make a donation, what's the website? What How do they go about it? It's camptacumta, T-A-K-U-M-T-A dot org. And it's easy once you get to camptacumta dot org. Well, I want to thank everybody for taking your time to join us on Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill, WJFF, and discussing this life and death issue. Any closing thoughts from anyone? Just... We need to start at the ground. Um, I think like uh, Congressman Welch said, it, it is, it's the private sector. We need to get this information out. People, I think, sometimes are sick of hearing me talk about it, but it's the only way that we're going to um, spread the word. Well, they may be, but it, it almost sounds like this is another Agent Orange. So I hope we get our wits about us here fairly soon. Okay, gang, thanks. Thank you. Airplane parts, pesticides, chemicals, cans of paint, used up medical supplies, batteries, all kinds of waste, PCBs and hard drives, too many things to list Don't worry about it Call it trash And throw it in the burn pits It's just nasty, dirty, stinky Jet fuel to ignite the spark And wind and the flames Tend the fire day and night Nobody takes the blame For the burn Ashes fall like snowflakes from the burn Stirring up a toxic crew Claiming that nobody knew The consequences of that deadly stew Bubbling in the cauldron of the burn pits Nothing offered to protect Body, heart, and mind, and soul The government has no regrets One by one, the 
soldiers fall for reasons no one will admit No recourse, no benefits Hey, they were only burning pits That is what we live next to Jet fuel to ignite the spark and wind and flames It's in the fire day and night Nobody takes the blame for the burning pits Ashes fall like snowflakes from the burning pits Ashes fall like snowflakes From the burn pits From the burn pits From the burn pits We contacted Don Shaw, director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, to find out what the VA is doing to address claims arising from exposure to the airborne particulates produced by burn pits. Here now is Don. Uh, the VA understands that exposure to airborne hazards like burn pits is a serious concern for many veterans. We strongly encourage all veterans concerned about any hazardous exposure during their military service to speak to their health care provider and apply for VA health care if they haven't done so already. Researchers, including experts at VA, are actively studying airborne hazards like burn pits and other military environmental exposures. Ongoing research will help us better understand potential long-term health effects, and provide you with better care and services. You can help VA understand the long-term effects of burn pit exposures by participating in VA's Airborne Hazards and Open Burn Pit Registry. Even if you have not experienced any symptoms or illnesses you believe are related to burn pit exposure, your participation could help VA provide better care to all veterans. You can find more information about airborne hazards and burn pit exposures and participate in the burn pit registry by visiting the following website, publichealth.va.gov forward slash exposures forward slash burn pits. Or you can simply Google VA burn pits. If you have further questions and concerns, or would like to speak with VA Hudson Valley's Environmental Health Coordinator, please feel free to call Lori Townsend at VA Hudson Valley at 914-737-4400, extension 3309. Thank you. We as citizens need to understand the unspun reality and human cost of war and those we elect to govern this country need to be confronted with the results of their decisions every day. Perhaps then they will think twice about the consequences of their actions, and if nothing else, they will see the names of those they have placed in harm's way, and their conscience will hold them accountable. Larry Winters is a Vietnam vet, friend, and contributor to this program. He's also a prolific writer. Larry, like many others, has found healing in creative writing. This piece is about the Vietnam War. However, the message is indeed apropos to Iraq and Afghanistan, and for that matter, any other armed conflict. Every community in America could have a billboard as you enter the community that lists those soldiers killed in combat, and a list of those soldiers and vets who have taken their own lives. This is the true cost of the bounty we all enjoy in the land of the free. Vietnam vets who have committed suicide are now far beyond 
the 58,000 killed in the war. Today's soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan wars that committed suicide is five times the number killed in combat. Is the media making enough of the suicides occurring in the military and in the veteran population? And is the public able to tolerate listening? I refuse to believe folks don't care that their loved ones, friends, and community members are choosing death over living. No one institution seems to know why the numbers are so high, but it is all too obvious that some of what is going on is the after-effects of war, as well as soldiers' fears of a second or third deployment. It may be facing a war that started when many of today's recruits were eight or nine years old. Some soldiers may feel shame or fear for not wanting to go to war that a country supports, so instead they kill themselves. I really don't know, and I don't think anyone else does either. Do soldiers and vets who take their own lives belong on the same honor roll that the dead combat soldiers are on? I say yes if we acknowledge the moral and psychological ramifications created by war on soldiers. The military and government must stop trying to explain these human sacrifices with confusing statistics. In the minds of suicide victims, there are a panoply of reasons, from guilt, rage, betrayal, love for those who they feel do not deserve living with their torment. For some, they may need a moral payback for lines that they feel they may have crossed. These men and women do not deserve judgment from the society that they once protected. Larry Winters, ex-Marine, licensed mental health counselor. So how will history recount what we have done or what we have failed to do? I doubt it will be kind in the way our Vietnam veterans have been treated. And I sincerely hope our elected officials will not allow those mistakes to be repeated. We wish to acknowledge the following people and organizations that made this show possible. Pat Cram, widow of Sergeant Major Mike Cram, platoon leader, Vermont National Guard. June Heston, widow of Brigadier General Michael Heston, Vermont National Guard. Staff Sergeant Kevin Dixon, member of the unit commanded by Sergeant Major Mike Cram. Representative Peter Welsh, member of Congress. Mark McLaren of the Democratic Group. Don Shaw, director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System. Larry Winters, Vietnam vet, author, mental health professional. The Columbus Dispatch. And the song Burn Pits, written and performed by Tori Seals and Lynn Langham at Operation Song Spouses Retreat in 2017. And, of course, to you for taking the time to listen to Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may get them on the air both in our normal public affairs announcement segments and this program. You can email us at vets at wjffradio.org Leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Ashes fall like snowflakes from the burn pits. From the burn From the burn pits From the burn pits Ashes fall like snow
Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com, and from listener donations at wjffradio.org. If you hear good music, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Your weekend can't even begin until Clyde Alvin Yates III sets it off Saturday night at 7. At 9, an hour of global sounds from the African diaspora on Afropop. Then at 10, Selector, Starkey, and DJ Chuck spend four hours of funk, hip-hop, roots reggae, club classics, and more, live on Old School Sessions. Saturday night, only on Radio Catskill. 